My name is Lexin. I'll be reading today's scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. I invite you to open your Bible and read along with me. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such, case, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will be save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is God's word. Thank you, Lexan. I get to be in home group with Lexan, which is great. And uh, it's just been so fun to see how the Lord's been working in your life over the last while, and to see you up here reading scripture is a beautiful thing. So, thank you. Uh, I am thankful today. That's what I have on the very top of my notes. It says, thank you, Lord. Uh, We have been six weeks in a series on sexual ethics. Six weeks in a series on sexual ethics, okay? We've had six sermons. This will be the sixth one. We have had six uh, gospel academies, including uh, an after-service Q&A, and then last Sunday, a panel on, un- on singleness, biblical term, unmarried, and it was amazing. There was a huge group that was there. It was beautiful, and I believe it's available online so uh, on our YouTube page, so you can go and watch it there. But I just, as a follower of Jesus, was deeply ministered to as I listen to our brothers and sisters who are unmarried talk about uh, what their discipleship journey has been like. There were so many things that I could connect to my life as somebody who's been married uh, to connect to my life and really encourage me and deepen my walk with Jesus. So uh, you just see the beauty of a community that has um, you know, different walks together and we're just rubbing off on each other and encouraging each other. So that was really beautiful. We also had Gospel Academy on... Um, uh, the Great Sex Rescue this last week that Nicole Ewaki led, and that was really powerful as well. Um, so we've had, we've had six sermons. This will be the sixth one. We've had six gospel academies. Um, if you think about our home groups, we've had 40 small group meetings on the subject of sexual ethics. Crazy, right? Uh, and then we've got these books in the back, and I don't know how many have been sold or taken or borrowed or whatever. We don't care. They're there for you. 
Um, so uh, I don't know how, but anecdotally, I, it's cool when I'm hearing people are reading books on the subject and really digging in. Um, and then also to add that our youth, even starting before us, has been going through a process of uh, studying sexual ethics, which, you know, they, and it, our youth, you know, if you're in a middle school or a high school, man, this is a live topic every day, a lot of the day. And so to equip our youth to be able to move through that space with a deeper understanding of God's design for sexuality is just a really beautiful, beautiful thing. So I'm thankful today for this journey because uh, I, I met with, Anglip can tell you, I was very nervous before we entered into this season. Uh, and we had lunch together and uh, I was feeling like, I actually had tears. I was like stressed about us entering this because it's just such a, a, a hot topic and fraught with so many landmines. And so I just really want to say today that God has been faithful and gracious and it just seems like we have really uh, entered into a new season of being able to talk about this subject more openly. And I just couldn't be more thankful to the Lord for his goodness, for his faithfulness. Yeah. Let's clap for the Lord because he's good. And we have seen, I hope, that there really are words of life in the scriptures on every subject, including sexual ethics. So, uh, and then I just want to shout out to our team as well, the leadership, council, elders, and staff who've worked really hard to do this well. You see the, the partnership of having a discipleship pastor who really uh, sort of gets under the hood and says, okay, as we're entering into this hard topic, what are the things we need to support the process? And I just couldn't say enough about uh, you, Pastor Paul, and what you have done to come around and support this process so that we can walk through this with, with like a, you know what I mean, all the different pieces. I've just been i even been nervous about what he was doing with the Gospel Academies, and, and God has just been so faithful uh, in that. So um, really grateful today for that. So let's pray a prayer of thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for your grace and your love for us. Um, thank you that you have been over this. You've been over us. You are Lord over all things. And I know there are hard questions that linger. I know that this is an ongoing journey. I know that we haven't answered everything. We haven't been healed from everything. We haven't explored all the questions that we have. But you have taken us uh, from A to B to C to D, and I don't know how far. And, and we want to just thank you for that today and praise you for your goodness, for your mercy that's over your community, for your love for us as your people. You are a good and faithful God. And so we declare our praises to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay, well, as we get into our last sermon on the subject um, on divorce, so it just, you know, we just keep hitting the, the challenging topics, right? Uh, but it's, it's the scriptures that are taking us there. Paul, in this whole section, is taking us to these places. And um, I want to take us back to a quote from Sam Alberry. Sam Alberry is uh, a same-sex attracted believer who uh, has been here and uh, ministered to us, uh, written um, on several books on the subject, and just has a what I think a very... Uh, deep and, and sort of uh, overarching view of romance and sexuality and sexual ethics. And one of the things that we have found in this process is you got to go back to the big picture all the time. If you lose sight of the big picture, then a lot of what we see in scripture related to our design doesn't make sense. The God's design for sexuality doesn't make sense. So 
I just want, like, that's just a practical thing for you to remember. When you're in a conversation with somebody and they're like, you Christians are nuts. Why do you believe what you believe? You've got to take them back to the big story, the big picture, what, I, what he calls and what I often refer to in conversations as the divine romance. The divine romance. If you ground what you're saying in the divine romance, then some of the things that seem strange to our culture start to make sense. And he articulates the divine romance in this way. He encourages us to believe in the divine romance. And the divine romance, uh, he describes in this way. Realize that our fascination with romance, okay, which is the core of the, part of the core of the sexual ethic, is this drive within us, right, for this desire for romance. Realize that our fascination with romance is actually a memory trace of a deeper story, an echo of a greater tune, a signpost to the ultimate destination, Okay, if we do that, if we can realize that that's where our fascination comes from, where it's rooted, then we will find the reality that can transcend even the most intimate of relationships we can experience. This is what God invites us to do. It's why he cares who we sleep with. It's why we care who we sleep with. Our sexuality is meant to tell a story. Our sexuality is meant to tell a story. The greatest story Because it's all about the greatest love, the love God has shown us in Jesus Christ. That's the framework that we we just simply cannot lose sight of if we're going to have a sensible, a sensical, a logical conversation with people about the biblical sexual ethic. Everything in creation tells a story. Sex tells a story about who God is and who we are in light of who God is. Uh, It's like God has given us this teaching tool um, so that ultimately we might know him better, right? That's, That's what God is doing. And it doesn't matter, you know, if you come at it from the standpoint of a married person, Uh, Or if you come at it from the standpoint of an unmarried person or somebody who wrestles with same-sex attraction, whatever your context, the story of your sexuality can still point to the gospel story. That's the amazing thing we've been seeing is we've covered all these topics. No matter what your story is, it can still point to the divine romance. And that's what we as a community want to dig into and try to understand together and appreciate and support each other uh, in. And so today's topic is divorce, and we can't talk about divorce without uh, this deep understanding of the sacred purpose of marriage. Uh, And if we keep in mind that marriage is what Sam Albury says, an echo of a greater tune, a signpost to the ultimate destination, then it will make sense, and it's going to be even more beautiful, right? It's going to be even more beautiful than we originally imagined. You know, when I got married almost, uh, well, 28 years ago, going to be 29 years. I can't even believe it. I got to start planning for my 30th anniversary already. Um, You know, I mean, I just had no concept really of what marriage was. And I continue to be drawn by the Lord, by his mercy and his grace into this deeper understanding to see ultimately what is what is more beautiful than I even imagined um, as a 23-year-old setting out on this journey. So let's dive in and explore how uh, today I'm using this, this framework, how marriage is a mirror 
of the gospel. Marriage is a mirror of the gospel. That's, that's out of that we're going to understand Paul's teaching on divorce. I have three questions for us, and um, they sort of build on each other, so I'm just going to give you the first one, and then we'll go to the next one after that. What, first question is, what does marriage mirror exactly? What does marriage mirror? Okay, And it, do, it mirrors many things. It's a picture of God-like sacrifice, Right? Both are called upon in the marriage relationship uh, to make deep sacrifices for one another in the way that Christ has uh, made sacrifice for us. So it's a beautiful picture of that. It's a, it's a mirror of God-like oneness in the sense that the Trinity, you know, it, it, Father, Son, Holy Spirit is one. And then, you know, the marriage couple becomes one. And all of that oneness gets us in the framework to be able to understand the, the, that we are, we are being one, made one with Christ. And so it's a picture of oneness. It's, it's a picture of God-like forgiveness, um, no marriage can exist without a healthy, healthy dose of forgiveness. It's just simply not possible. And for many of us, it may be that the, the hardest m- moment of forgiveness we'll ever have to endure is forgiving our spouse for something. Um, and it might be something dramatic. It might be something more subtle. Uh, but it's long-lasting. And so, and so uh, it's a picture. Marriage is a picture of forgiveness. Marriage survives oftentimes on the extent of its ability to dig into, to live into forgiveness. Marriage uh, is a picture of generosity. Um, in marriage, we give of ourselves fully to the other person. And one of the things that I always like to say in, in marriage preparation is, you know, don't think of your marriage as a 50-50 proposition, like you're each going to bring 50% to the marriage. That is like, that's like death to the marriage, because now we're constantly calculating, did I bring my 50% or did you, oh, you know what, I brought 51, you're only showing up with 49, what's up with that? And it just creates this dynamic in the marriage that can be really unhealthy. But when you turn it and you think about giving 100%, like your, your primary question is, how can I give 100%? And the spouse's primary question is, how can I give 100%? And when you, when, you, when you try to outdo each other in that generosity, it's amazing what takes place in a marriage. So marriage is a picture of, of God-like generosity. But today we're going to focus on the way marriage mirrors something else. It mirrors God's tenacious commitment to us as his beloved. God's tenacious commitment to us as his beloved. It mirrors perseverance. It mirrors covenant love. And I want to read a few scriptures to you that sort of set this up because we, we need to reflect on God's love for us. And then we can talk about how marriage is supposed to mirror that. So this is from Deuteronomy chapter 31, uh, verse 8. I'll put the references up there, um, but just want you to listen. Um, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Over to Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. See, this is the nature of God's relationship to his people. And marriage is, is meant to reflect that covenant commitment and that perseverance. Over to Hosea 3, 
verse 1. And the story of the book of Hosea, which we have preached through. You can go on the, on the website and look. It's a remarkable book, the book of Hosea, because God basically calls this prophet to marry a prostitute. And what he's saying is, look, my commitment to you, Israel, the people of Israel, is like Hosea's commitment to his prostitute wife. Because you, people of God, people of Israel, you have gone and prostituted yourselves to other gods, and I remain committed to you. And so he calls Hosea to marry a prostitute as a picture of that commitment. And the Lord said to me, Hosea says, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Over to uh, John, chapter 3, verse 16. We could all probably quote this together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And in there, I'm trying to draw out this, this pursuit element. There is this element of pursuit. God is pursuing us. That's, that's the, at the core of the divine Romance. And just a couple more Romans. Let's go over to Romans 8, verse 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see that pursuit and that commitment, the fact that nothing can shake God's people from him. And then lastly, Matthew 28, 20, the the very end of the book, Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, which includes this moment right now. And so you see throughout the whole history of scripture that there is this divine romance. God is pursuing his people. He loves his people. And his pursuit is so tenacious. His commitment is so great that nothing will shake his his, his covenant love from his people. And, and so you've got to understand marriage in that light, that God's persevering covenant love is one of the greatest truths in the entire universe. It really is. It's one of the greatest truths. In, like everything that is good stems from the fact that God loves us tenaciously and is committed to us and will not let us go. And so marriage is like a signpost of that kind of love. Marriage is a signpost. It's like, it's like when you see a marriage that's functioning, it's like, oh yeah, I have tangible um, 
uh, I have a tangible expression of something that is, is spiritual that, that I have a hard time grasping. Marriage is a signpost. It's why divorce then becomes such a big deal in the scriptures. We're to wrestle with persevering love like God does. God wrestles with it. That's why the book of Hosea and these other parts of scripture where you see God wrestling to love his people when it's hard, when, when it's difficult. God is wrestling through and we're to model, marriages are to model that persevering love um, that reflects uh, the way that Christ, that, that, that the Lord loves us. People see marriages that persevere and then they start to get a sense of how great God's love is for us. Jody and I were walking together the other day. Um, and like I said, we're in 28 years. So this year will be 29. I got to start planning my 30th anniversary. Um, but we were walking. And that's one of the things that we love to do. This is we just found works for us is to walk together. Um, because there's fewer distractions. And so uh, I looked up. We've done 44 miles together uh, this year. Which is not huge. But you know, it's pretty good. Um, and a lot of those are like a Friday on my Sabbath, we'll do a five mile walk and we'll walk and we'll pray. And we actually see a lot of you when we're walking around. Um, it's fun. So this last walk, we probably saw 10 people and, you know, it was great. Um, uh, but but um, Jody prayed this prayer this last week and um, she, I, I mean, it just struck to the core of my being. She said, as we were praying, she said, Lord, thank you so much for healing our marriage. And then she went on to pray about that and the unique, the details of it and what all was entailed in that. And I just, I felt like I had, I was like, Lord, okay, just kill me now. I'm good. My wife just prayed that prayer. Now, and marriage is hard. Persevering in marriage is really hard. It is really hard. And, you know, not every day has been like that in our marriage. You know, we all have, I think, when our marriages get difficult and we want to run away, you know, we have like this tragic fantasy that we play out in our heads about what it'll look like when we run away. And Jody, her fantasy, her tragic fantasy is to become a missionary in Africa, right? You can imagine that. Uh, and then mine, I don't even know, it morphs over time, but my tragic fantasy is that, I don't know, I'll be living in a cabin somewhere, and I'll have a big beard, and I'll be making furniture, you know, something, or wood carvings, or something like that. And it sort of morphs over time, right? But we have these, and I'm just, I'm telling you this because I want you to know there are more moments in my journey than I can count you know, where we're nurturing those sort of tragic fantasies. Um, and God calls us, God calls us back and does this, and, and through a lot of work and a lot of counseling and a lot of prayer and a lot of fasting, you know, God brings us together. Because here's the thing, if I can stand in front of you and say, guess what? We've committed to be together. We're sticking it out. And you know that it's been difficult. Do you know that we've gone through challenge, challenges with our kids? Brutal challenges with our kids. You know we've gone through financial challenges. We've gone through, you name it. We've gone through lots of different. When you can look at that and say, okay, 
uh, that's amazing. Those people are sticking it out. And, and our marriage is not even, I mean, 28 years is not a big deal. All about all those, my dad, I was with my dad yesterday. They're going on 62 years. So um, when you see that, it's like a signpost and it's a picture of God's love for his people. God sticks it out. God fights through. God perseveres. God stays with it, right? Because of his great and powerful love for us. Now, I know I'm speaking pretty strongly here, and I know life is messy. I'm going to get to the messiness, okay? But I, ne- I also need to sit here for a second and just make sure that we got the basic framework here. This is why Paul says in this passage that was read for us by Lexan, the wife should not separate and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, separate and divorce were basically the same thing. We've, sep- we've, we've made two different terms, meanings of those. But in that day, in Roman culture, which Paul is in, in Corinth, uh, it was the same thing. And it's interesting, again, just a testimony to the way that in the scriptures, there's an approach to men and gender roles in men and women that's different than would have been common in the world. Paul says this to both. He says, he says, the wife should not separate and the husband should not divorce. And the thing is, he's been so enthusiastic about singleness, about being unmarried in the previous section, which uh, Pastor Miguel preached on last week. He's been so enthusiastic. He's got to come back and say this because there might be people who were there in that context say, well, then we should just divorce. If singleness is so great, if being unmarried is so great and we can serve the Lord, then we should just leave our spouses. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, if you are married, then you should not separate. You should stay in the marriage. Um, and he's, he's saying that out of sort of this larger framework of understanding. Um, divorce was extremely common in Roman culture. Most marriages apparently ended in divorce and it's just not a big deal. Um, so um, he says you shouldn't even separate if you're married to an unbeliever in verses 12 through 16. And there's that statement he makes about this being a command of Paul. And that doesn't mean that it's optional for us. Basically what he's saying is, look, Jesus didn't, he didn't have to address this issue. He was in a different context in a different time in the history of redemption. So he didn't speak on this subject. So whereas he did speak on, you know, the fact that you shouldn't separate or divorce, he, did, he didn't speak on this. What about a believer and an unbeliever? And so I, Paul is saying, as, as an apostle, am speaking onto it. But as an apostle, it carries authoritative weight. So this isn't like, because he's saying, not I, not the Lord, but I, he's not saying, well, just, this is optional. He's, he's saying this is the apostles then uh, statement on this subject. And the primary point is that the believer should not initiate separation and divorce. As long as the believer is, un- unbeliever is willing to continue, the believer should stay in the marriage. And then he's going to address two questions that would come up at that point. First of all, the, married, the, the Christian person, the believer in the marriage would say, well, what's the impact of this going to be if I stay in the marriage? And this is where this holiness language and this purity language starts to make sense. Like, am I going to be tainted by being married to an unbeliever? And are our children going to be impacted by me being married to an unbeliever? And he basically says, no, the, the force of you being a believer in the marriage is greater than the force of the unbeliever not you know, trusting in Jesus, being in the marriage. All the benefits and the blessings that come with following Jesus Christ will not be hindered by the fact that you're being married to an unbeliever ultimately, 
okay? So it's sort of a statement of affirmation and blessing on that believer who's in the marriage with the unbeliever. Uh, and then he's, what is the purpose of you remaining in that marriage? And again, it's the same thing we've been talking about. It's for the, uh, it's, it's missional. It's to show the world the, the commitment that comes with marriage so that they can get a taste of God's commitment to us. And in this case, it's very intimate because the other person is, is seeing that. And so if you do your job of sacrificing and being generous and loving, maybe he says, you'll just win this person how do you know whether you will save your wife? How do you know whether you'll save your husband? So there's a missional element. So part of the, it's part of the very nature, its essence. That, that Paul, what Paul is reinforcing in this is that the very nature of marriage, the essence, the purpose of it is that it is a covenant that perseveres. It's a covenant that perseveres. Uh, for the people that are in the marriage and for the world to see and for uh, God's glory. So that's a, I know that's a strong statement. So let's, let's ask the second question. Can the marriage covenant then ever be broken? Can the marriage covenant ever be broken? And we live in a fallen world filled with sin. And there are all kinds of things that God calls us to that we don't fulfill in our lives, right? Uh, and so try as we might to mirror godliness in all aspects of our lives, we fail and so can a marriage fail? Can, there be a, 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 can the marriage covenant ever be broken? And I'm thankful uh, Pastor Paul made this point. You know, in some of these conversations about, about sexual ethic, it's very matter of fact. And you're like, where's the, where's the romance in this, you know? But there's, a, there's an side to that that's really good. We, we've got this clarity that we need when we're talking about uh, marriage and sexual ethics in the Bible. And so I'm thankful for that. Thankful for God's clarity. Um, and really, there are four ways that the marriage covenant can be broken. The first one is death. The second one is adultery. And I'll direct you to uh, Matthew 5, 31 through 32 on that, where basically Jesus makes the exception clause that divorce is not permissible except in cases of adultery. Um, and then abandonment by an unbeliever. So that's the passage we just looked at here in verses 12 through 16, because it says, you know, if the unbeliever consents, so there's an, there's an understanding that the unbeliever might not consent um, to remaining in the marriage when somebody's become a Christian. And so in that case, then divorce would ensue and, and the believer would not have control uh, over that situation. Um, so abandonment by an unbeliever and then lastly, abuse. And um, it, you can't, it's hard to find a scripture that talks about abuse uh, being a justification for the marriage covenant being broken. Um, I, I feel most comfortable just saying it's a logical, rational thing that if somebody's physically being harmed, um, then, then that, that makes sense. Now, some would argue that um, essentially at that point, the abusing spouse is acting like an unbeliever. Um, and so that's why it's permissible in that case. Um, the challenge with that is that we're often acting like unbelievers. Um, so, right? So, um, so we, have to, we have to think that carefully through. And in a lot of these cases, it's messy and it's hard to know exactly uh, how, to, how to slice it. And so that's why it takes the community of faith and it takes, you know, 
pastors and elders and friends who love Jesus to walk with people to try to discern um, what is happening uh, there. So those are the four, just to be very matter of fact about it, those are the four ways that we have in Scripture that the marriage covenant can be broken. And that leads us to the third question then, is how do we encourage perseverance in the marriage with grace and truth? So acknowledging the reality that we just looked at, how do we encourage perseverance in marriage with grace and truth? So let me say something about truth, and then I want to get to the grace part. And I know some of you are listening to this, and you may have a sense of conviction or angst or struggle and so I want to speak to, hopefully, uh, pastorally to both of those, to all sides of that. So first of all, truth. We need to be consistent. As a community, a faith community, we need to be consistent with the biblical teaching on divorce. We need to be consistent because, especially in our current time, um, the church has often been accused of being easy on divorce and harsh on other sexual sins. So you've probably experienced that or thought that before. Um, that's not right. That's not, that's not right. We need to be consistent. If we're going to uphold this, this sexual ethic like we've been trying to do over these last six weeks, we need to be consistent across the board. Um, we need to be consistent uh, with the godly sexual ethic uh, that we've explored uh, over the course of these last six weeks. Um, so those who are married uh, are called to persevere. That's the message we as a community need to send to each other and out into the world. Uh, and this probably means we need to pay close attention when things are difficult in marriages and encourage people to get help because that's how you facilitate perseverance. And I will own um, that one of the things I wish I could do over in our marriage is I would have gotten counseling help, marriage counseling help, way earlier than we did. We waited until things were really challenging with our adult kids, and then we started to seek additional help at that point. And I think that was a mistake. I think that we needed to own some difficulties and some failures early on and get some counseling help uh, early on, like in my late 20s, even before I, you know, even, you know whatever. And so um, that's something I want to encourage you, those of you who are earlier in marriage, to think about. And I want to encourage you, those, all of us who are in community, um, to be looking out for our marrieds and caring for them through, through prayer and encouragement. Like, part of the reason we have the family of God is that if there's something off, you know, then the family of God can help to move in and, and bring healing and prayer and encouragement. And so we need to be that for one another with our marriages. We need more regular training and support for our marrieds. I think we need to figure out how to do that on a more regular basis as a community. That's something that we really need. And those advising, um, uh, you know, married people, whether from a pastoral standpoint or a church leadership standpoint, um, need to encourage the biblical mandate of perseverance to be uphill, upheld. We need to encourage that biblical mandate in our counseling um, and just to continue to speak to the importance of it. So that's the truth side. We need to be unashamed of this powerful truth and this calling because it's, it's going to protect marriages. It's, gonna, it's going to lead it to blessing for people. Um, and so we need to be unashamed to take a stance that one of the key, the essence of the marriage covenant is that it perseveres. 
that it keeps on hanging on in difficulty and challenge. We can't be shy about that. But we do live in a messy and a broken world, and we're sinners, and the past is the past, and things have happened, and so we also need grace. We need grace. We need to extend grace, and we need to receive grace. Uh, many of us have an uneasy relationship with divorce, and I, you know, just even coming to this sermon, I was just praying and trying to talk to people because I know that many of us in this congregation have an uneasy relationship with divorce because it's part of our background, part of our personal history. It could be ours or it could be from our family. And this is just a really painful area. And like so many things related to sexual ethics, it's fraught with shame. It just, like everything related to sexual ethics has an extra dose of shame connected to it. And so, um, so some of us are carrying that burden just as we even sit here this morning. We're carrying that burden of shame and maybe it's been for years and decades. And, um, and I wanna say to you, that I'm pretty sure as I read my Bible and I try to really understand things, I don't think the Lord wants you to live in perpetual shame. I don't think the Lord wants you to live in perpetual shame for your whole life. So how do we, how do we uphold the truth and also live in the grace of it? Now, um, there's some unique dynamics here. You know, if you weren't a believer when you were divorced, um, you know, that's a different kind of a thing because you, on some level, you were not uh, under the same obligation. Although marriage is a a creation uh, covenant, so there could have been some understanding there, you know. Either way, reconciliation would be great if it's possible, so we would always want that, if at all possible. Um... But if, if you were a believer, you probably feel a sense of shame that comes with failing to live up to what you understood to be God's design. And you carry that, you might carry that day in and day out um, as you live and as you interact with others. And um, so what do you do with that? What do you do with that sense of shame? Um, how do you get out of the perpetual shame cycle? And there's really two ways forward uh, with that. You can, you, can do, you can review the divorce and determine that it was legitimate according to the uh, exceptions that I put up earlier in the sermon. So you could, you could determine that, yeah, the, the divorce I went through was legitimate because it fits into one of those categories, whether it's adultery or abandonment or abuse. Uh, and in some cases, it can be hard to determine if, if, if it fits. And so you need advice, you need prayer, you need conversation. You might need to go over the history, the past again with somebody or several people and try to come to a clear conclusion about that. It'll take some work, is what I'm saying in some cases, to figure it out. But you might also review the d- divorce and determine that it was not legitimate. It doesn't fit into one of those categories, that it happened and it doesn't fit into one of those categories. And what do you do in that circumstance? And if you're both still unmarried, you know, and reconciliation is possible, then you want to pursue that. Obviously, we got to state that up front. If there's no possibility of reconciliation, uh, you just, you need grace then. You need grace. And I want to just thank God that grace is possible. 
grace exists, that grace can be extended in some of the most difficult situations where we feel like there wouldn't be any. Psalm 103, 11, 12, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That truth stands even in the conversation of divorce and the shame that comes with it. But I want to say this, you need not only to experience the grace from the Lord, which you can have if you, you know, and I wish we had more time to talk about. I'm going to talk about repentance a little bit next week and as we go to Easter. So um, this, this will factor into that. There is a process of repentance, so you need to go through that. It needs to be robust and real, like Psalm 51, you know, when David, uh, when David slept with Bathsheba and there's this, this deep, powerful psalm that he writes that tells us how to repent, like, there, there needs to be a real process. There have been times in my life where I've spent a day where, you know, some of the worst sins I've committed, I've had to just spend a day in repentance to get to the place where it's like, okay, Lord, I've given this over to you and now I receive, I believe in your forgiveness. So you might have to do something like that with the Lord um, to be able to get freed from this baggage of shame and sin. Um, but then it's not just because Marriage is a public thing. It's not just with the Lord. It's also with the people around you. Pastor Paul was telling me a story about a church he was in one time when there was a couple that was was married in the church and they were married after having an affair with their spouse. They had an affair and, and their spouses had been in the church. Now the spouses who didn't have the affair were gone and only the two that had the affair were married in the church. And people in the church were angry about what had happened, and it hadn't been dealt with. So there needed to be a process of of apology, of repentance, of forgiveness, so that there could be freedom, because our marriages impact the relationship around us, our kids and the people. And so there is grace available, which is such a good thing, but we don't want to have a a thin view of, of grace. It requires us also to be engaged in relationship, and sometimes to go to people and ask their forgiveness of our kids, the people who love us and were part of the journey and stood there initially with the marriage. But I really believe that if we take seriously that process, there is the hope of freedom in Christ. And that's where we need to get to. This is not a thing to be of perpetual shame, okay? So that's the, that's the gospel way. Don't assume grace from God and people. Do the work, but also don't assume it's not there. Don't assume that grace isn't there for you. That's the message. All right, finish up. Our sexuality is meant to tell a story. Um, here's the amazing thing, that God is so sovereign and so gracious that whatever broken journey we end up on, and all of us with respect to the sexual ethic are on a journey of brokenness, Um, whatever broken journey we end up on, he still can be glorified in our lives. And so I just want to say in closing these three things, it's never too late to glorify God with our sexuality, starting today. It's never too late. It's never too late to find healing for ourselves in the gospel because of God's good mercy and grace towards us. And it's never too late to seek blessing towards others, the way we 
live with them, the way we treat them, the way we apologize for things we've done, it's never too late. It's never too late. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter how far we've backed the semi of our life into a cul-de-sac and it seems like we just can't get out, right? There's a way out. That's a fundamental theme at the core of the Bible. Do you know what the word exodus means? It means way out. Do you know what Jesus did when he went to the cross? It was his ex-hadas, his way out. And you have a way out in Jesus Christ, whatever your circumstance. So God, thank you. Thank you that you provide the way out, not in some theoretical way, but in practical, tangible ways that apply to our individual lives sitting right here today, wherever we are in this journey, you have a way out and a way forward in the gospel. And so we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.